This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 349, we're going to figure out how magic works once and for all as we discuss how to conceive of magic in a game to help you build setting and background. And joining us for this episode is the Tome Show Scholar of Literature. You know him from the book club. It's everyone's favorite French-Canadian. Welcome back, Eric Paquette. Hello, bonjour. Bonjour. Uh, also joining us is everyone's favorite gnome, someone who has thought more deeply about D&D than literally everyone. From gnomestew.com, it's Jared Rasher. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and lastly, but not leastly, uh, it's everyone's favorite D&D TikToker. He's been podcasting, making video, and more since the golden days of all of it. Uh, <laughs> and, and, under the name Basics of the Game, it's your friend and mine, Jeremiah McCoy. Hi, ho there. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to be talking about magic. For instance, what, is it, what does the way magic, uh, how it works in your world, say about your setting? What does it say about the characters? Uh, Jeff got all philosophical about magic recently, and his conversation is the result. But before <laughs> we get into it, it's worth noting, it's magic. We know it's magic. It does not require an explanation or an understandable way of working, but exploring these ideas can help inform your world and your characters in a fun way. If you run into contradictions or want to do something differently, that's fine. It's magic. <laughs> it doesn't need internal consistency, but it's a fun exercise to think about. All right, that's my that's my little disclaimer for uh, because so many people. The, the, some of this conversation came from from a tweet that I made. Um, mostly because I was already thinking about this topic of conversation anyway. So I tweeted about it and then some of us got into this, this conversation about it. And so many people responded with the, it's magic. It doesn't have to make sense. I'm like, yeah, but that's not the fun answer. I want to have the fun answer. I want to, I want to have the stupid conversation that doesn't need to happen because it's fun. Well, and <laughs> it's also not the right answer. <laughs> and, well, and Jeff, I, I, we know there's only Vancean, right? That's the only magic sure, yes. ever existed in the world. If Jack Vance didn't conceive of it, it's not really a form of magic. <laughs> I, I mean, not to actually take the subject seriously, but let's take the subject seriously. <laughs> Having internal consistency to your rules of magic means the difference between something you can a- interact with and something that you passively experience sure uh before we get too deep into it though i do want to let people know if you want to support the show and if all the things we do here you can support us just like doug palmer hyperlexic james d'alessio jester david jill sanders leonard pelche and newcomer carl anderson they are patrons at patreon.com slash the tome show this is how we pay the bills on the show and if we have enough patrons i'm able to show some appreciation to all the other people who help make the show possible So, if you can consider supporting us in that way, please consider doing so. All right, now let's get into the very serious conversation that may or may not be actually necessary, Um, but but I think is fun. Uh, So, I guess my first question then is, 
Can there be a cohesive theory of how magic works in D&D? Does it make sense to – is it like even possible to, to have like all spells function in this way sort of theory? Absolutely, but only if everyone agrees that I'm right about it. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> However, yeah, I, I, I think to a certain extent you can agree on at least basic principles, and you kind of have to in order to play a game that has rules for magic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a concept already that certain classes work certain ways and they get certain supernatural powers and they have access to certain spells. So right there, you're already seeing that magic has some kind of rules that at least the immortals interacting with it have to deal with. And in D&D, yes, you, in D&D we have rules and all that, and you even see over the history of D&D in certain settings that they had to modify how magic works for certain settings because to make it feel like like Dirksen powered by environment, the planes where every plane that you go, certain spells work better, some work some some spells work worse, some spells work differently. Mm-hmm. So you you need a framework to be able at the basics for that, and part, I think part of this conversation is sort of determine what possibly could be that uh, framework? I, I, I think that uh, the concept of sort of an overarching in-world explanation for how magic works is harder to grasp sometimes because the rules have changed, because different settings have different things. So it's hard to find that. But simply put there you can't play a spellcaster uh, class if the rule if, if magic doesn't have some kind of rules that make it work the way they do sure uh, so it has to have something sure my my question is okay so i i'm a wizard no i'm not jeremiah is a wizard that's obviously what i meant to say <laughs> jeremiah is a wizard <laughs> and um, and he he casts fireball one round, and he casts invisibility the next round. What is he manipulating? What is he doing to create those dramatically different effects? Well, and I know that's a very detailed question. Can I take to a larger, yeah. like a bigger picture question? Because you asked, like, is it possible to create this cohesive? theory on how magic works in D&D and I think unless D&D started with a cohesive theory it would be very difficult because um, so we have a list of spells so that makes it sound like these are spells this is magic this is what mm-hmm. it can do but we also know different classes and different like power sources get access to different spells and it's super unclear what really at least to me what decides that right yeah. so then that tells me it's really hard to create this completely cohesive theory but maybe we could say that in a particular setting that we can start coming up with explanations Mm -hmm. and then i think over time particularly how long fifth edition has come out like it's always difficult to keep designers into like (laughs) saying that this is the because it doesn't help the story Right. right so we have that conflict between what makes for a good story versus what is neat and tidy and and works in a taxonomy well and i don't know 
I don't know that any sort of universal formula for for the functioning of magic, right? I don't know if, if detailing the physics of magic um, makes for good game design, but I find it a really compelling and interesting conversation to have and, and uh, a way of thinking about our worlds. Tracy, you want to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, like, as part of that, because I was thinking about this too, is like, well, aren't we just talking about science then? But then even if we look at real-world science, there are areas that we don't, our current... Uh, conceptualization of the world doesn't match mm-hmm. some of the phenomena we see. So there can always be these exceptions and eventually maybe we can figure it out. But for now it is the equivalent kind of closer to magic. Right. Um, so then it shouldn't be an issue necessarily for us to have that same sort of view when we think about magic in the game world. Yeah. To, to draw on something from uh, another game, uh, a game called Mage, uh, different magic practitioners do magic in different ways, accessing essentially the same kinds of forces, but their paradigms are different. And the way they look at the universe is different. And I think that's a helpful way of looking at magic in uh, D&D, is that you know, if you're looking for an in-world explanation, the people who do the magic that they do do it because they're stuck in a particular paradigm, a particular way of looking at the universe, and that's why they do the magic that they do. Um, that's and, that's and, why what the wizard casts is different than what the cleric casts. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, they're both accessing forces that rules and forces outside themselves, um, but the what they can do with those forces is based off of how they perceive those forces and how they... Uh, interact with those forces and it has it's not like either one of them has a complete picture it's more like oh well i'm stuck in my own viewpoint right so i can do what i can i can visualize yeah. mm-hmm. and to touch a bit to what jeff was asking about this, the specific spells and a bit what you're saying jeremiah they have a different view but you can also have within like all the mages have different mentors and different types of magic, different schools of magic, <laughs> you could say. But yes, uh, specialize in all that, so that way you can have different styles of, okay, so the uh, the uh, one type, type of schools to cast fireballs needs to chew the bat one out. That's part of the mentor component. Well, someone... Well, <laughs> <laughs> Just spit on it, or, or, or spit it out. no, no, it's fine. I get, I get it, but ew. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you have to pay some stuff for magic, but anyways, but that way, in your story, you can go, oh, you learn, you learn under Fizban, or you learn under Elminster, and you can know which school, who, who taught you, and what style you have, and that can give into your story I, i'm trying not to i'm trying to stay big picture but some of the things that people have mentioned well, just reminded I, asked me a, of the, I asked a very specific detailed question so you don't you well, don't need to stay too big <laughs> what i what i like one of the things that i always like because i was a long-term realms fan myself is when you go into ed greenwood has written quite a bit about <laughs> different 
you know, spell books and how people learn their traditions and all these things like that. Like one of the first ways that the realms was actually revealed to people was in articles in Dragon Magazine where he's talking about spell books and the wizards that inscribed them. So that's kind of one of our first windows into that whole setting. And one of the things that is true when you look at those spell books is that Fireball is a formula and there may be a very popular version of Fireball that a lot of wizards have shared with their apprentices. But in some of those spell books, there were versions of Fireball that required something slightly different and they would come up in some of those books every once in a while where it would actually have a different material component. This is this version of Fireball utilizes this instead or this version is fourth level and does this slightly different thing than the standard version of it. Mm-hmm. And that was back in you know the, the first edition days where we had some of these spell books that were getting detailed that way. And another thing that he that Ed Greenwood mentioned about the way he envisioned uh, magic in the realms is, like, when you're saying the words to a spell, when it has a verbal component, not every person says the exact same words. They're hitting the same syllables. They're hitting a certain crescendo at a certain point, but they might one person might use actual words in common and rhyme them, and another person might use ancient words in draconic that just hit the same syllables. It is worth commentary, I think, that the material component for uh, Fireball is bat guano, Mm -hmm. because that's also an ingredient in (laughs) gunpowder. Yeah. You can make gunpowder using, among your ingredients, bat guano. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there is a suggestion, at least, that wizards are a little more scientific-ish mm-hmm. in their use of, uh, of of magic. Arcane casters in general, but wizards in particular. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the more divine casters, your, your clerics, your paladins, uh, your druids, are a little more uh, touchy-feely. Like, they're, they're calling their power from something else. Um, uh, to to cast their spells, whereas uh, wizards, bards uh, uh, are, are are pulling like they 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 know enough, uh, and and warlocks they're they're actually directly calling a very specific source, right. and sorcerers are calling on their, their themselves. But the, the the suggestion is that the divine casters are. The, the suggestion is that they're tapping into the same source that those gods are getting their power as opposed to necessarily pulling from the gods themselves. Yeah, so so I, I, and I like this idea. You're talking about guano as being a, an, a component for gunpowder and that tying to the idea of fireball. So you could conceive of the casting of fireball is the caster is drawing from um, whatever the source of magic is in that world, whether it's the weave or um, the life energy around them on, on Athos, or I want to say Greyhawk was like, there was a magic serpent like behind reality yeah, or whatever. Some versions of Greyhawk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cause that's, that's who, who taught Vecna to be a lich or something. I, I recall from some stories. Oh, yeah. it was the serpent. Uh, but in any case, or not, depending right. on which story. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but but the caster is drawing a little bit of energy from there, and they're using that to sort of 
um, release the innate explosive power of the guano or the energy of the guano. So I could see that, you know, the, the energy is used as sort of a trigger uh, to, to enact that. So then how can we envision in that same world, in that same conception of magic, a caster drawing that same source of energy and instead turning themselves invisible? So first off, let, let me throw this out here for you. Is the bat guano also a component of gunpowder because some wizard uh, played around with alchemy and realized that this thing could make things go boom, and so in their head they decided to use this? Or is that sympathetic magic where this is something that resonates across the universe that has something to do with explosions, Mm. and therefore it is a stronger sympathetic tie to the explosive forces of the universe. And similarly, you could you could go, you could go planescape with this whole thing and say the the cohesive theory of how and why magic works is because people believe it does. Right? As long as enough people believe that if you say these syllables and throw these ingredients around, this effect happens, uh, then it is the power of belief that makes magic happen, which kind of ties into to what, or at least what I thought of when, when you said that, Jared. So, yeah. well, well, if you follow that train of thought, then invisibility works because you close your eyes and you're sure nobody can see you. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, invisibility, I think, is the, the component is gummed up eyelashes. Um, so that's definitely more of a sympathetic thing rather right. than, than, than maybe a scientific thing. Um, but yeah, it, there's definitely a sense of, um, learning the rules and using those rules of the universe to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, divine characters don't necessarily have to know the rules of the universe um they just believe that it works and it works um like um like you can sort of structure a bard as maybe he doesn't understand the nature of the universe but he does understand the nature of music meter rhythm um and and that and how that interacts with the magic so he can do that or i like uh, i like the bard as as knows how to sort of inflame the passions and emotions of the people around them and manipulate them and whatever, you know. Right. Um, whereas a, a warlock doesn't need to know anything really. I mean, same with the sorcerer. Um, that, do you even know how to read, dude? No? Okay. You know, no judgment. No judgment. But um, But, yeah, they don't actually have to know anything other than they have power and how to use their power. Well, but arguably they still have they still have the same components for those spells. So they still have to know the arcane words and the ingredients to it's throw true. around and all that. So they still have to know stuff. They just don't get to know as much stuff. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> what is the difference between a sorcerer and a psionicist who also they have oh, their own oh. power to come out. Well, well one exists. You and just the other opened one a gigantic you, can of worms. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't. If, if you want to get into psionics and bring that into the conversation, I think that's the rest of the night. So. Yeah, no, exactly. But in current edition, one exists and the other one doesn't. Sure, sort of. <laughs> that depends on if you and if you pay attention to playtest documents and include those. Yeah, psionics <laughs> brain magic. It's brain magic. <laughs> My address. So. 
as opposed to time magic, which is headache magic. I know that from experience playing in games with Jeremiah. So, <laughs> so um, I do have a weird unified D&D theory. Excellent. And this comes from me overthinking things going back to 1987 or so. So, <laughs> um, okay. Back in the first edition, um, planer, uh, um, Manual of the Planes, there's a section in there that like has a number rating for different realities. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because Earth actually exists according to multiple D&D settings. Like, Earth exists uh, canonically in Greyhawk, Earth exists canonically in Forgotten Realms. So, therefore, you have to account for Earth. There, there are articles where Elminster shows up yes. at a Greenwood Roots place in Dragon Magazine. So, yes. And, yeah, and it's not just a Realms concession. That's kind of a D&D concession. That, right, because you know, it's, it's, it's Elminster and Dalimar and who is it? Is it Morton Kanan? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Morgan um, can't stay out of a good discussion like that. Right, <laughs> but um, the in in that book, the setting for Earth was basically that you can't. I forget what the cutoff was, but it was something like nothing above a first level spell would ever work in our world. Like there is a possibility for magic, but it is extremely slim, so you're not going to really see it having a big impact on our world. Now. What I was going to propose is, this has been in my head for a long time, all of the D&D worlds, if you're going to scientifically rate them for how magic works, are probably just like one degree off of each other. So they don't all work the same way, but they all work similar ways. And we know this because they use the same rules in the game. There are the same spellcasters, there are the same you know divisions between how you know one class gets spells and another. So therefore... Magic is different between them, but it's not that much different. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that caused my young brain to keep developing this theory is the fact that Spelljammer and Planescape tell us, no, these are all connected worlds. These are not separate realities that never touch each other. They're, you know, you can go from, from Greyhawk to Mystara and it still works between those two. Sorry. <laughs> but you know, that magic still works between those two. So, in is, theory, is Mistara the name of that world? Yeah, Mistara yeah. is the name of the okay. world uh, that uh, was in the Gazetteers and the Basic okay. and Expert and all but that. But Greyhawk is not the name of that world. That's Orth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is called Grayspace. That's in, true. In, uh, in, the, in the, the crystal sphere that it's in is Grayspace, and, and, right? And it's the only crystal sphere of one of the main settings where everything revolves around the planet instead of everything revolving around its primary oh, sun. sun. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> I don't know if that was a meta commentary or not, but that's that's what it was. Yeah. Anyway, not to drift too far off this, but magic in D&D, to me, from what I've read from multiple settings, is the creative force of the universe whether it's leftover from whoever created the universe or what, it's this underlying potential energy that was powerful enough to create the universe. <laughs> and mortals cannot conceive of this normally and pull the stuff out and twist it and turn it into things. So there is some sort of interface 
between the mortals and accessing that magic. Whether it is some cosmic being that shoves it into your head, or whether it is you finding something that collects and causes that magic to move a certain way and learning how to mm-hmm. deal with that ebb and flow. So in Faerun, that would be the weave. In Athos, it is literally just sucking the life out of things in order to power magic because you're converting life back into that potential that potential energy of creation. That creative energy, yeah. Yeah. Um, even if you throw something in that is sort of a D&D setting but isn't, in Midgard you have ley lines. That's a big right. deal in, in Midgard, and that is what is holding magic close enough to the world that people can learn to access this ambient energy that is not really meant for mortals. So it's it's this creative energy that binds the universe together. All life is connected to it. It's, it's this this sort of uh, it binds force. it and penetrates it. <laughs> and penetrates it. <laughs> It's in the way mortals interact with it are these mm-hmm. tiny particles. <laughs> <laughs> what shall not be named? <laughs> there is actually another explanation that has floated around. I have seen it show up in Dragon Magazine articles, but I don't think it made it into any of the books, except for the Marvel superheroes role-playing game, because <laughs> it's how magic works in the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are three forces of magic. Yep. Personal, environmental, and universal. You're either tapping into the power of yourself or the power that's around you individual, like in your environment. Uh, Say you're in a volcano and you're drawing on the power of fire or something like that. Um, And then there's the universal. Uh, So you're calling on big powers. You know, example for Doctor Strange would be if he called on... The Crimson Bands of Sidorak, he, you know, he's calling on a universal force. He's calling on a big force. Um, whereas if he casts a spell from himself, it's probably weaker, but he doesn't have to channel something else. He's just doing himself. You could apply that model to D&D, and it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, in, in, in how you explain how your powers interact why the low-level spells have less uh, effect may be because you're channeling just yourself and maybe your environment, but as you get higher power, you're channeling more universal power. Um, And similar with uh, Divine Casters, they are uh, uh, primarily limiting themselves to universal power that they have limited Mm -hmm. access to and gain more personal power Mm -hmm. as they go up. Now, see that that into my mind, and and we've been weaving in and out of sort of these other topics as we've gone, but that to my mind builds an interesting setting that might diverge a little bit from you know the actual mechanics of the game. Like in that kind of a situation, like I want to change bat guano in the the components for fireball and turn it into 
a bit of obsidian because now you're drawing on the power from that volcano over there. I don't have to be at the volcano to draw on the fire from that volcano because I've got this bit of obsidian that was created by that volcano and now I can kind of draw on its power. And that creates an interesting sort of story. It almost feels like magic in that way, right? I was just going to say, Jeff, would you say that you're... Drawing on the power of a mountain in order right. to cast. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly right. No, now, and that occurred to me when I when I heard Jeremiah talking about it. Um, is that it, it's almost like and it feels a little bit like Mad, Magic: The Gathering, uh, in that you're drawing on these different types of, of lands or forces in your world or whatever. That is that gets into this topic that I wanted to talk about of of how do we conceive of magic and how does that build our settings and our understandings of the settings, right? We talked, you know, uh, uh, Jared's concept of magic all being sprung from this natural creative energy in existence um, fits really well with a lot of different things. And then it's just an issue of, well, different different traditions sort of access that creative energy in different ways, whether it's through sympathetic magic or praying uh, to, to gods or asking for favors from, you know, things from beyond space and time or whatever, right? Uh, uh, but they're all accessing this sort of creative energy in various ways. And that sort of fits well into Athos. That fits that fits well into every D&D setting I can think of. It's a pretty universally applicable conception of magic, right? Um, but then there's other conceptions, and that's what I think Jeremiah is, is giving me here, is that you can conceive of magic in these other ways – and it says interesting things about your world that might change things a little bit. Like thinking of magic that way doesn't dramatically change the game, but it says something about your setting, right? And it, and I, that sounds kind of fun to me. I think that uh, the different paradigms that they view magic through – is evident in some of the worlds, uh, in particular, you know, Forgotten Realms had shadow magic and, you know, uh, all of that. Wild magic was all affected by how they viewed the magic of that world, right? Not in the uh, realms, no. In the realms, that was all viewed on how they interact with the weave. Right, but that's <laughs> what I mean. The weave is the paradigm in which they view magic. Whereas on Eberron... Right, the magic uh, is seen almost like an understandable force that that uh, it's almost like science. It's, it's, yeah, pseudoscience. Yeah, and there's a conception of this is so reliable we can build technologies on it, um, and and so that affects that conception of magic affects the iterations of it. Mm-hmm. I guess. Um. So yeah. Other worlds are a little more loosey goosey with their conception of what magic actually is. Like well, Rehawk didn't really have a conception of that. <laughs> Mistara didn't really have a conception of but, what. But that's magic that's is. that's where the creative energy of existence sort of works, is because you can right. you can conceive of every spell in existence as being tied to either creating or destroying something using this creative energy and manipulating it. That's why I think it's it's fairly universally applicable. But that doesn't necessarily make it the most interesting. No. No, but I, I'm going to do a there is no spoon moment here. <laughs> if you look at uh, creative energy as being 
the interplay between entropy and um, and creation, you get back to the very very early fundamental appendix N conflict between chaos and law. Sure, being fundamental to the existence of everything. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> or the or in the or the inner planes, the positive and negative planes that were part of that, mm-hmm. which. All right. Well, and and to to a, to a certain conception that that is also a more you know and 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 now you've turned me around, right? The uh, the, the the energy of creation being the source of all magic feels like it can just sort of be applied to everything. But if you take that to the nth degree and really take down like what? But what does that really mean? That suddenly means that maybe the conflict between chaos and law is actually more important. <laughs> than in, than good and evil, which is what we usually focus on, right? Chaos and law ultimately is creation and destruction, uh, and that is, in a universal sense, way more important. And if that's your conception of magic, then that's the real issue, right? Because that's a thing that's constantly happening. That was the conception in the works of Roger Zelazny's Amber series, is the, the, the conflict between the uh, courts of chaos and Amber the home of order uh, generated all the possible realities and all the possible magic in the universe, um, which was neat. It's also, I mean, it's, it's also the primary conflict in Dr. Fate. If we want to bring it back to comics, which is where we started. Sure. Today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also Pierce Brosnan just got cast. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. I saw that. Fate, so. <laughs> now what so. kind of Dr. Fate or who as Dr. Fate? We don't know exactly yet. Do we, but uh, I think they said he's Kent Nelson. Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if they were going to go back to ancient Egypt to make him Naboo or something. Well, that's what I was wondering because you could have done the, uh, Kondong, you know, Kondong. contemporary with, Black Adam originally getting the power, and boy, that's a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This is already probably in in I don't know what have I been doing this show? Fifteen years now. This is a, 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 on, on at least a twice a month basis, and this is probably one of the geekiest conversations <laughs> I've ever had. This deep of a dive into the physics of magic is ridiculous, and 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 I'm really enjoying it. So I hope listeners are too. <laughs> I mean, I. I... I, it's possible I may have thought the phrase "I'm not high enough for this conversation," but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, no, I, I think that the um, I think there is something productive to bring it back around. There is something productive, as particularly if you're homebrewing a world, to decide on what paradigm the magic works from. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be make it the the uh, interaction of elements you know uh, you could uh, do a variation on what uh, Magic the Gathering does or you could do something like uh, Avatar the Last Airbender you know right. the interaction with the different elements influences and then from there describe all of your magical effects based off of those that paradigm and right. come up with new sort of twists on things from that paradigm. I've certainly had a conception of magic that I've played with a little bit where everything is pulling from energy from the inner planes, right? So everything is pulling from the the four elemental planes or the the what are the the combination planes called? I forget. Elemental planes. Yeah. The para elemental quasi elemental planes and even and then adding in the the um, 
positive and negative, and you can kind of account for most spells. Basically, every spell becomes at least a little bit of a summoning spell because you're pulling things in from these other planes, right? Um, but uh, but that's definitely a conception of magic that I've played with as well. I think... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you can go in other directions. Like, you don't have to strictly go by the traditional magical thought. You could go with, this is unknown science. Mm-hmm. This is science that is outside our normal conception, but there is a science to it. And say, you know, it's computational magic. Like, you have figured out the formula to make that fireball. Um, and uh, it makes it, you know, you and you come up with science, sort of pseudoscience applications to make all of the spells work but they're tied to a scientific explanation on some base level. So you're Jesse Quick who says a math formula to cast haste. <laughs> or <laughs> I was actually or, thinking of Charlie Strauss's uh, The Laundry Files. Yeah, I was going to say it's like almost Lovecraftian where you're doing math, but it's math that breaks reality. <laughs> well, there's also uh, in the Babylon 5 universe, there's the Technomages. There's even a wonderful series called The Passing the Technomages, which... You see the training of the mages mm-hmm. and all that, and they have a mechanical thing that connects them, and they do magic. Sure. And even in them, every techno mage does magic differently. Yeah, and I could see, I could see a um, a conception of magic. Let's say that there's a setting where all magic, all magic, is the power of the gods, and some arcane casters have learned how to to hack through the back door. Right, and they're stealing godly magic to do their things, or they're calling, they're pulling in the ener- the ambient energy of dead gods, and the, the gods don't like it, right? And so now you've built a whole setting around it, right? There's, there's this whole sure. concept of of a theocracy or whatever, and and building off of that. Is that sort of the concept of Dragon Age, where the 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 wizards in there unlock a portal where magic is housed? And that's how bad stuff came out out of mm-hmm. that too, because they they tapped too deep. Right. It, <laughs> but if God, if God didn't want me to cast these spells, he should have changed his Wi-Fi password. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Or, yeah. or or there's a, I mean, you could also conceive of magic as that it's all personal. All magic is personal, right? Which kind of ties back to what Jeremiah was was saying with Avatar, right? There's a degree to which like. You know, uh, firebenders are pulling the the energy and the fire out of themselves uh, in order to create those effects. Uh, And so there's an element of that. You know, maybe all magic is in some way um, you calling on the energies within yourself and learning how to do that. And it creates an almost um, martial artsy sort of monk-like sort of appeal to to all magic. What's – there? there's at least two – two things that have 5th edition expressions right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the 5th edition version of uh, Primeval Fool and uh, Streets of Avalon where in neither one of those settings there are wizards and clerics but there probably aren't gods. And mm-hmm. the whole thing is is they it's just people learning how to channel those same you know energies in different ways. It literally is just you know um, like in Primeval Thule, you are there is like an investiture ceremony where you get hooked up to the supernatural, and from that point on, you're a cleric, and you know you learn <laughs> your abilities. And but it's really the ceremony that you know 
hooked you up with the supernatural, not really you touching the divine. And in both those settings, there is a strong Lovecraftian element. So it is sort of this this kind of touching another reality and maybe using geometries you're not supposed to to reshape this reality to the way magic works there. The thing is, D&D outside of Dark Sun has not done a lot of consequences of magic other than you running out of your spell slots, which makes it harder to tell a compelling story with that narrative, but not impossible. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, like, this is all really fun and interesting things that we can think through on a meta level, uh, right? But I don't, like, I, I feel like every single theory of magic that we've expressed might very well be a theory of magic that somebody in the same world has, right? And that there can be conflicting theories of it and from spellcasters who are calling on this these this energy or these powers or whatever they could all they could still sort of disagree we know that when we say these words and make these motions and throw these components around it has this effect but we have all kinds of different you know opposing ideas about why that happens right and so i think it's worth that it's okay to i think it's okay to you know uh, like, like the disclaimer at the beginning, I think it's okay to not know, and we know that, and we get it. It's magic. It doesn't have to be known. It doesn't. Maybe it's best if it's not known. Um, but it's fun to sort of conceive of it as a DM. I like to have a, a concept in my head and then change it if if the moment calls for it, right? Um, but I also think it's fun to consider the different theories that might be out there, and consider like how that could flavor your character. Right. If your character believes that magic comes from a certain place, use that when you describe how they cast their spells uh, and and where that comes from and what that looks like. Uh, and I think that's an interesting way because uh, so far most of our conversation has been great sort of world building, dungeon mastery sort of meta concepts, right? Uh, but but I think it's fun for players to think about this stuff too. Maybe not in terms of what is the universal theory of magic, but what does your character think the universal theory of magic is and how does that change the way they interact with it? I, I would say that that's a conversation to have with your DM. Oh, sure. If you're playing a spellcaster and you were like, hey, I have this conception of how magic works that my character has, just so the DM knows and can play into it yeah. or not. Like he can affirm or deny based off of what happens in the world. Um. But letting them know uh, definitely helps. Well, would it be a good potential discussion to have in like a session zero and stuff too, where um, bringing up like one, do you guys care if there's a universal, like how magic kind of works, even if we don't agree on it right now? And then two, opening up if there are like multiple spellcasters or even other characters. Um, who want to have an opinion on how magic works, uh, it might be cool to have differing opinions and have that be a running theme in the campaign if that's what you want. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, that also opens up um, some world design stuff. Like, uh, if you people will notice... Uh, particularly in the two magic settings that have been published as D&D settings, they don't have everything. There are some races that don't exist on those worlds and so on. Uh, it might be an option to at least have in that discussion of world building, if you're building a humber world, 
that if you have a particular magical paradigm, say, for instance, uh, all magic comes from dragons. You make contracts with dragons, and that's where all the magic comes from. Uh, you might say, well, this particular uh, subclass doesn't fit in this universe, so it just doesn't exist. Or, or, or maybe clerics don't exist. There are no gods here. You have no clerics. Or something like that that does open up that door right. as part of the world building and session zero does discussion. It, doesn't Athos do that too? There's no clerics? There's no gods here? They do, the have they do have clerics, but the source of their magic is the is elements. Yeah. Right. In Athos, all magic is always from a source. Right. So King Casters is from the land. Uh, clerics are, mo- are from the elemental planes. Right. Templars is because the sorcerer kings got access to uh, astral beings that, when they were created, uh, so they can that which are like gods to be able to grant it to the, who they, they worship. So there is an explanation in sending that there's these creatures that exist that got attached to the Sorcerer Kings, and the Sorcerer Kings were able to give it to their te- who was worshipped those, those Templars, their clerics. Do, do we do, need to go we, back to Dark Sun and the book club? Because I never knew any of that. <laughs> not even the, no, that, you, you'd, have to, you, you'd have to read uh, the uh, supplement. The source uh, books. The source books yeah. uh, for it. That's not going to show up in the fiction. No, <laughs> it doesn't show up in the fiction, but yeah. And... And they, they actually explain in it that all those beings, when the first creation that of the Sorcerer Kings that exist got created, all of those creatures died, but the Link stayed. So there's no new of those creations. So there is, there's no new... See, now, now I like the idea that those astral beings weren't gods as we conceive of them because they never cared and they're not gone they just don't care because they're great old ones to tie it all back to lovecraft (laughs) it's 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 not really a god that they're tied to it's the king in yellow and they're just not pulling enough energy for the for him to notice you know (laughs) but but the the point of that particular tangent is you can absolutely customize your dnd rules what you will and won't allow in your game uh, with discussion with your players, obviously, uh, based off of a paradigm, a magical paradigm. Right. No, and that's and that's all tied in with this whole setting building concept that we've been having. And I think it's it's I've I've certainly come to a point where I enjoy doing setting building with my players at the table as a DM. Uh, if I'm creating a, a new setting whole cloth, that's the way I, I like to do it is like I, I might have a concept, but then I'm going to throw like, OK, here's a landmass over here. What's it like over there? And I like I like to tie them into helping me build the world. Um, and but then I also like the idea that that this can all like as long as you're building this concept of magic and we start from square one, I think even as a DM, if I'm thinking of it as a meta level, rule number one is, but it's magic and we don't really know, right? I could be wrong. Even I, the DM, who's thinking on a, on a you know meta philosophical level, I think has to come at it with the approach of, or maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe it's not this universal force of creation. 
Who knows? And if the story goes this way and it, and it turns out to be more interesting that I'm wrong, then let's be open to that, right? Uh, and if it turns out that we're right, then that's fine too. Uh, but I think, you know, wh- whether you're working with players to sort of build their character's conception or it's the DM, I think the number one rule is like, make sure it's clear from go that this is just a character's conception of magic, not necessarily the universal rule of how magic works. And actually going the other direction, like not from the big top down like we've been doing, but Mm -hmm. like from the bottom up, you know, when you're talking about getting those magical concepts, there's a lot of just little story elements that we kind of gloss over when it comes to Mm D&D that make great story elements if you want to tack more details onto them. I had a cleric that took ritual caster so I would have a familiar because I wanted to be a grave cleric that had a raven. You know, it was... And but because in fifth edition they are either infernal or celestial or fey spirits, I figured that since I'm playing a cleric uh, in the realms, that Raven was a devil that has been cursed to actually have to work as a familiar because he cut a really bad deal with somebody in line <laughs> in the fugue plane, and so he's being punished. So part of his punishment was he had to serve as a familiar. So like we had this running joke about how, you know, he would show up and get killed and I would record how he died because I was a cleric of Jurgle. And that was part of my shtick was that I was observing all the different ways he could die. And this was part of his punishment for making that deal. Mm-hmm. And there's like little hooks in story that exist in D&D that you can build out if you kind of notice, oh, wait, this is saying this. Right. That's it's kind of a throwaway thing, but what if it wasn't? It's so, yeah, so often where I mean you we get down I mean I I say we I uh play in games where you know you you have your list of spells and you don't really think too much about what that spell looks like or you know describing, you know, how you manipulate the 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 components or whatever in order to create the effect and and what have you but i think it can be a lot of fun to do that sometimes i think you can build a lot of interesting world and and setting information character information that way uh and now i'm torn because i have a game tomorrow and i've been i I start every session with an opening question uh and i'm not sure if i want to ask just sort of the general where does your character think magic comes from or if i want to ask What's the favorite spell that you cast, and what does it look like? How do you do it? Right? Uh, um, I don't know where I'm going to go now. Do I'm going to start with the big philosoph- philosophy philosophy of magic, or do I want to start real uh, personal? Because every single one of them, you know, even the paladin can can cast a spell here or there. I know that uh, when I, I played in a stream uh, back in 2019, and I played times. a wizard, huh? In the before times. In the before times. <laughs> uh, and uh, I played a wizard uh, that was from Ravnica. And the first time uh, Uhinio, uh DM Jazzy Hands, asked me, what does that spell look like when I cast the spell? Mm-hmm. That helped me picture in my head uh, what he thought of magic. So right. when he was casting, it was he's forming... Uh, very ornate circles in the air using his staff that leave a sort of glowing trail as he does the the thing. And it's him forming the circles and triangle symbols of of um, his order in 
Ravnica Mm -hmm. because he's all about order and contracts and things like that. Um, And I didn't think about it before he asked the question. It was just, I was a wizard. I could cast spells and do this. And he was Mm -hmm. like, well, what does it look like? And I was like, oh, yeah. Right. And and then, then from that, it shaped how I viewed all of his magic. And and that's where I think this really geeky, uh, deep into the weeds conversation about the philosophy of the source of uh, and the universal formula of all magic um, can be a lot of fun and can actually play out as practical and real at our table. Um, because when you start thinking about those things through the eyes of your character, um, it sort of brings it all a little more to life, right? Yeah, I remember uh, when I was in high school, when I was a teen, so two decades ago, uh, or more probably. Anyway. No, it wasn't that long ago. Quiet, you. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh. Anyways, I was playing D&D, and I was playing a wizard, and in this was second edition D&D, and they mentioned the fact that each spell in your spell book takes a number of pages equal to the spell level. And since during lunchtime, I, I was wanting to do stuff, so I actually grabbed some pieces of paper and I was looking through my character's spell and I was actually writing, like, limited myself to the number of pages as is required and actually writing notes and designs and all that of what that spell is. It was fun. It was fun. And actually, yes, like Jeremiah, it, it gives you an idea of what your character is. Mm. And what you know, It was full on me creating stuff, but still, it's fun. I think um, in 5th edition, the, the spells I have seen people customize the most have actually all been cleric spells. It's been oh, yeah? Guiding Bolt, Spiritual Weapon, and um, Spirit Guardians. Because people really like to customize those things when they're, you know, well, some when those, they're discussing how these manifest. Some of those are customized by, like, spiritual weapon is supposed to look different depending on your god yeah. or whatever, right? Uh, spirit guardians at least has a few different vague forms. And now what you want to mm-hmm. make it specifically, um, who knows? I particularly liked, um, I don't know if anybody's ever watched uh, Dimension 20. Uh, they do a, a stream show. It's it. They're they're uh, they're basically the live play show from um, College Humor, um, and they had a character in one of the campaigns who was an who had become an atheist, but she was the cleric. Um, and so every time they cast spirit guardians, it was these ghostly forms of like philosophers running around and and karate chopping people who <laughs> got too close. <laughs> And there are certain spells that are there that already have some sophistication of how they work, like Tensor's hideous laughter in the material components. It says mm-hmm. tiny tarts and a feather that you f- that you flap along. So okay, you know that you're gonna flap around as well. So you have that right. somatic component. Yeah, the spell. A lot of the spells have the story and the inspiration in them. If you take some, the time to actually look. Even if it's just look at what the components are. Look at, and notice that bat guano is a fireball thing. 
think about how are you how are you doing that? Are you throwing the bat guano and it's igniting? Are you just summoning sort of sympathetic energy out of the bat guano? Anything other than chewing on? Yeah, anything that, else? Literally anything except chewing on, because that's ridiculous. Summon a gun and then shove the guano. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think actually it should be said those material components are listed there. There is nothing that says you can't change those. Yeah. Except I am DM. a fan of swapping out material. Or, you okay. know, material. Well, yeah, but, but you can go, hey, DM, when I cast yes. <laughs> Fireball, instead of doing this, I actually rub a couple of uh, a, a flint, and, uh, a flint and steel against each other when I cast. I mean, it's giving you the same vibe. Um, or, or, you know, you're using a focus and you don't use them anyway, but, right. but yeah. <laughs> I had a uh, in the game I play with my kids. I had a I, I, I'm playing a character as well, just so that we have more characters. Uh, my first character who died was an artificer who cast uh, Ray of Frost using this little because he he was an artificer and he liked to carve little wooden toys. So he had this little bird toy and he would sort of flap its wings and then the Ray of Frost would come out of it. And then the character died. And my youngest son made a point to say, "I pick up." and keep that bird. And now every time he casts Ray of Frost, he pulls out that little bird <laughs> and that's the component, right? <laughs> so it's, yeah, I mean the, it doesn't change the, the capabilities of a spell. It doesn't change the cost of casting the spell. It doesn't change anything system wise to change yeah. the material. Now, component. now there are, there are arguably exceptions. There are the consumable sort of expensive sure. or special, you know, the, the hero's feast that requires a special, really expensive bowl. <laughs> like that's hard. That's rare to find. You know? <laughs> so. well, okay. This is, this is where you get into my personal pet peeve. Yes. Is the limiter supposed to be 10,000 gold pieces or is the limiter 10,000 gold pieces and DM fiat to say that thing that costs 10,000 gold pieces isn't available. Because those are two different things. Those are. No. Because if you're just saying 10,000 gold pieces, yeah. then the rules expect you, whenever you get 10,000 gold pieces, to be able to cast a spell. Right. But if it's also expecting GM fiat, then you're basically saying well, and that's you're a, only casting the spell when the DM is allowing Heroes you. Heroes Feast is particularly weird. Like, if it's if it's a, thir- a certain amount of gold pieces worth of diamond, like, diamonds are a resource and they're around and whatever. But, like, who is building... Hundreds of thousands of bowls worth ten thousand gold pieces. Like that's a, that's a really fancy bowl. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you who people in Exandria. That's who. Yes, that's apparently. Who <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't, does it consume the bowl or does it just? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Heroes Feast is ridiculous. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean. As long as you have a conception of what it actually represents in the game, you could just as easily change that bowl out to something else. Uh, instead of a bowl, it's a, a cornucopia that's worth a thousand dollars, or it's a, a a a silver spoon that's worth a thousand gold, or any number of things. As long as you understand that you're meeting the requirements of the spell. Well, but and th- but that's where the DM has to come in because that's saying right. something about the setting. Yes. And the DM needs to have a say if if you're making decisions that impact the setting. Like if it, it, and as a DM, I think you need to think about that, right? Is it important to you that it's this specific thing 
that they need to find and needs to be available. And maybe that's a limiting factor to make sure that Heroes Feast doesn't go crazy and, and that people are casting all the time because who the hell's running around making this kind of a super expensive bowl all the time, right? There's there's sure. some of them out there, but the DM can limit a little bit that way, right? Um, but that goes back to the DM's fiat type comment yeah. because no. now it's just totally up to them and then... And what's hard about this is that that stuff was based on, if I recall correctly from other stuff I've read on the internet, like there used to be a better explanation of the economy of these types of Mm. items, uh, but don't exist as much anymore because there's kind of this expectation that if you're of that level and you pick that as a spell that you learn that you should be able to do it as long as you have the 10,000 gold pieces. Um, I think that's slightly different between versions. Yeah. Well, there has been books out there that listed all the material components and the, the, the rarity of it mm. and the cost, so you can put it and put it into your setting. I mean, that all that level. That all be, that whole conversation became very real in my Curse of Strahd game because the players wanted to have the diamonds available to raise somebody if the if the occasion occurred. And my thinking was, why would Strahd just leave all those diamonds running around in Barovia? He's had plenty of time to scoop up every single diamond in the entire valley. And if you want diamonds, now you got to go to Strahd, you know? So, but, but here's an interesting thing, though. Were you looking at that from, I am using this logic that this these diamonds have to be the material component, and therefore the villain can outthink people and remove an option that is assumed in the game... Or did you literally just not want that option available in the game? No, it was because the first again, one. that's that's two separate no, things. Yeah, no, it was yeah. it was definitely the first one. It was me trying to think about Strahd being smarter than I am, and figuring out how to represent that mechanically in the game. <laughs> so. uh, and and if if you were wanting to say change the difficulty level for spellcasters, um, and. As a story element, obviously you don't want to punish players right. because that that's kind of a, a crappy way to treat your players. But if you were interested in making it more challenging for a spellcaster, say you're in Ravenloft and suddenly you have to rework how all your spells work because you don't have the weave. Right. So you have to come up with new material components. You have to figure out how the spells work in that world. Mm-hmm. Some of them work the same. Some of them don't. Right. Um, Gosh darn it, you just made me think of another comics reference. <laughs> in the JLA Avengers crossover, Flash could not use his super speed in the Marvel Universe. Oh, because the, the speed force it, wasn't... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, for material components also, knowing where, which components and where the source can be useful, like in Dark Sun, being a mage is illegal. So, for those material components, where they get those, you can have the stories of where they have to avoid the the Templars, the law of the city, because they are surrounded the place where you're getting a component from one of your spells. What do you do if you don't get? Can you can you replace it with something else? Can you improvise? You can ask those questions and go for the game. And you know, getting back to what Tracy had said, um, in third edition there was a list of, you know, there was a cutoff for what you get in a city. So at the very least, you knew if I'm going to get one of those bowls to cast Heroes Feast, I'm either going to have to go to Waterdeep or Calumport. Like it, it's, 
I'm not going to be able to find it in Burdusk. That, that they don't they don't have enough ambient wealth in the city to be able to produce something like that. Well, I think uh, this conversation has been fruitful and fun and super geeky, <laughs> and I've enjoyed it. But we've also been talking for over an hour, although I don't know. <laughs> but but the the larger point being is that it is almost my bedtime. So I want to call on anybody that has any last thoughts, things you, you want to talk about that hasn't come up yet. Uh, who's got some, some last thoughts to share? Um, I, I will toss this one out uh, in reference to something – that Tracy said earlier, uh, have a session zero conversation about this. Um, you know, and, and just put it on your list of things to ask about when you're asking people yeah. about their characters, you know, try and get a grasp on where they stand on what this, how magic works, because it helps you to write better in adventures for them. It allows them to understand where those DMs going as well as because of the back and forth. Definitely put this on a session zero conversation. Well, and I don't know that I that I necessarily want to. I don't want to have every conversation in every session zero. So I, unless it's going to be a major theme of the campaign, or you've got like a wizard or somebody who's really into the spellcasting thing as a character, I'd probably leave it off. But if if there's a chance you're going to make this a theme of the campaign, it's a really fun and interesting conversation to have. Or if you're going to have that deep spellcaster, um, it's a really good way to sort of prod them into thinking deeply about their character and and those story elements that that are are, are illustrated through their spellcasting. Every good party has a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. <laughs> And that's why we need you on more often because you're the Tome Show Wizard. Apparently. <laughs> and happy about it. For, for, for GMs, even players that are trying to figure out stuff and what inspiration, you can also look. There are books in the occult of people who have looked up and thought of philosophies, and you can use that as inspiration for your fictional universes. So and there's you can go there's the laws of magic that, that that's those an establishing rules and you can use that okay about because we've talked about some and magic and all that and those are stuff that's been discussed and you can use that as inspiration. Also, since you were mentioning it was your bedtime, maybe magic is generated by dreams. Oh yeah, we never even uh, address <laughs> that, that uh, possibility. <laughs> <laughs> which is which kind of then it kind of ties back to Eberron as well uh, with the Dalcor and, and all that right isn't that a whole dream magic mm-hmm. thing and the Fey and the Fey <laughs> and then going to the point about um, how you can increase the difficulty level potentially by making changes to the magic and allowing people to to discover it that one thought I had is that could be really good for if you have different player levels. So you have someone with a lot of experience and then maybe like parents with their kids in a, in a group setting, like maybe some of the parents want to play wizards and maybe the kids do too, but they'll be newer where they can do that uncovering experience. So it's not, so it's engaging to them too. Depending on obviously on the group and everything. (laughs) All right. You know, Jeff, I think you could get like a, a at least a whole season of podcasts out of this topic, basically. <laughs> yes, it's a big topic. It is. It is. Um, and, and we could go 
we could do. I mean, I need to call on the uh, the um, Edition Wars folks, Sam and and, and Brandis, <laughs> to to do a deep dive into the history. You know, for specifically, I want them to research. Uh, where magic comes from in Oerth and Greyhawk, because uh, clearly that is an issue <laughs> that worthy of, of conversation. Then, then you get into the whole thing about whether people count different reboots of Greyhawk as part uh-huh. of their Greyhawk, because... But that's what's Grey- great about Edition Wars, is they go into that, <laughs> and they can have that yeah, conversation. Yeah. All right. We're going to go ahead and call that the end of this episode. We'd like to say thank you to our guests. Hey, Jeremiah, where can folks find you? So I do have a website, jeremiahmccoy.com, which gets updated every so often. I'm on Twitter as Tech Noir, and on Twitch, and more particularly on TikTok, I am known as Basics of the Game. And I mainly talk about D&D stuff, though I do occasionally touch on other issues. Awesome. Jerry? All right. Well, uh, you can find a lot of what I do on Gnomes 2. You can also find... Uh, uh, some reviews and articles that I do on my own website at what do I know jr.com. And if you want to track me down on Twitter, you can look me up at, at what do I know jr. And Eric, where can find, folks find you? Well, other than on the book club, you can find me on Twitter at Eric M. Pax, Awesome. And we'd like to also say thank you for all of you who support us by being patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email the Tome Show at gmail.com. You can find Tracy on Twitter. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. You can find the show. It is at the Tome Show. And that's episode 349, where we created a universal magic formula that maybe isn't as universal <laughs> in this episode of I'm <laughs> <laughs>